you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 803. What do you got on the Nerds Community Corkboard? Michael... Lebois, Leboy. I have no idea how you pronounce your name. It's L E B O I S. Lebois. I think it's. I think it's French. It's a very nice name. He, he writes. My band Red Tide Rising is releasing a new EP called Voices. We are a metal band from Denver and trying to get our name out there for our upcoming tour. You can find out more info, hear the music, and more at redtiderising.com. And then also, I want to make sure everyone knows that we have so many other podcasts on the network. And we what? Have, we have new ones like Puck Soup, which is a hockey-based podcast. We have the Jonah Carey Show. And then we also have others like Chewing It with Kevin and Steve, who are from Broken Lizard and mm-hmm. have the upcoming Super Troopers 2. And they've been talking a whole bunch about it. Uh, we have Hound Tall with Moshe Kasher, Pop My Culture, The Jackie and Lori Show, and so many more. So just go to Nerdist.com and you can find them all. Don't forget the JV club and the jv club oh she did a great one today uh it's her she does the boys of summer or it was yesterday the boys of summer series and she had hutch harris from the thermals on nice yeah. way to go janivani uh also for a few more days you can get the uh 50 minute tv version of the fun comfortable stand-up special that uh is my stand-up special that premiered last week on Comedy Central. Uh, there's an hour and 15 extended version uh, on iTunes and Amazon and Google Play and Sony and a few other places. And uh, there's also uh, there's also uh, extended bonus content on there as well. So you can get the free version for Nerdist listeners. The 50-minute version is available for uh, just a few more days. And, uh, and then the other one is... And if you bought it, I would really appreciate it. <laughs> and you get all that bonus content. You get the bonus content, too. This episode is Rob Reiner. Uh, who is promoting Being Charlie, which is in theaters today, May 6th. Mm-hmm. Now you can see it. You can see so it watch right it. It's, now. it's actually a really touching movie, and, I, and uh, it's, it's about uh, his son's struggle with addiction, and uh, obviously it meant a lot to me, having struggled with addiction, and, uh, and it's a really beautiful, it's a different kind of a Rob Reiner movie than I've seen before. So uh, Rob, is, uh, Rob is really great to come in and chat with us, and, uh, and uh, here we are. He was amazing. I loved his story about The Princess Bride. That was my favorite. I love that movie. I love that book. I was so stoked about that. That movie holds up, too. The book holds up. You read the book? You got to read the book. It's my favorite book of all time. That is your favorite book of all time? Absolutely. Not something sportsy? No, I've read it like 10 times. That's fantastic. So you, as a lover of the book, were happy with the adaptation? Of course. Okay, good. Yeah. Here's Nerds Podcast number 803. 
with Rob Reiner. Now entering Nerdist.com. You're a fan of water. Variety of small water. I'm one of the people that likes it. (laughs) Very few people. I'm going to do this. So how's it going? What do you got? Is your your whole day, is it just all press this week? No. Well, no. I mean, starting like we're going Saturday to to back east. Okay. And then it's like a week of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Today's you and then Mark Marin is is all I have. Listen, all that matters is we got you first. Yeah. I'm kidding. I don't yeah. care. Yeah. I know it's yes, funny. They said that because Debbie or Booksler was like, you know, he's going to do Mark's show. I go, that's great because Mark will yeah. dissect everything yeah. differently than I will. Yes. Yeah. He, he'll he ask all – I don't know what – I saw him last night. It was – unfortunately, it was the uh, – it was the the, the the memorial for Gary right, Shandley, right. and he was there, and so I saw him, and I told him. He didn't even know I was going to be on a show today. He, Are you serious? Yeah, I had to remind him, oh, yeah, okay. You know, so, I mean, he's he's totally with it. Playing it cool. He's yeah. playing it. He's playing it. Inside, he's screaming like a child because yes. he's excited that yeah, you're going to no, be on the yeah, show. Yeah, no, I know. But he, then he was only talking to Albert Brooks. Oh, no, no, it was Billy, Billy Crystal. He was, he, he was more Crystal. interested in Billy Crystal than he was with me. And are, <laughs> did, did you want to grab Mark and go, I directed that fucking guy. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. well, you know, you, you try to throw your weight around, but sometimes yeah. these people, you know, stand-ups. Are you a stand-up? You're just yeah. a comedian. Or are you a stand-up? I am, yeah. All right, so you're a selfish guy like yeah. every, every other stand-up. I'm sorry, I was thinking about myself. What were you just saying? <laughs> like every other stand-up. So, you know, yeah, they think about themselves. Right, and you want to grab maybe not appropriate in memorial but you know today you could grab yeah. him and uh, well gary i mean it was funny i mean people were funny kevin nealon you know was really funny and and uh, oddly enough gavin de becker do you know who that is yeah yeah gavin de becker the you know he's one guy. of the security guy exactly he got huge laughs really which you know is i don't know if you're interested in having your house secured that you want a guy who does that yeah. you'd rather have a more serious minded person. You know, The Gift of Fear, top ten comedy books right there. Yes, that okay. Was, that was the book he wrote yeah. about uh, why you should listen to your fear instinct. That's I guess. right, right, yeah. right, right. The Gift of Fear. But overall it was uh, Yeah, it was no, it was, nice... it was very nice. I mean, Judd Apatow did, uh, you know, orchestrated the whole thing and it was really nice. They had some, you know, Sarah Silverman talked and, and Alan's Y. Bell, you know, who created yeah. the first show with Gary, and it was really nice, and 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 uh, there were some songs and things. It was it was very touching, moving, and also very funny. Yeah, I mean, now that you've uh, you've been in comedy for a while, you've I imagine you've had to go to a lot of those types of. Well, you know, more than you want to. I yeah. mean, you know, uh, you know, you don't want people dying at sixty six. You yeah. know, you're supposed to wait. I mean, I remember one time I went to a. This was a, a birthday party for Mort Saul, and he was turning eighty. And uh, you know, it was a birthday party. It was not a memorial, but Albert gets up and says, I didn't, you know, they should publicize these things better because I thought this was, I thought this was a memorial. I thought he had died. And he says, you know, a lot of these comedians, they're doing their acts. They're up on stage all the time. I just wrote this thing and I can't make, I can't make adjustments. So he basically, so he basically talked to, 
talked about Mort as if he, you know, he was a great man. He was, a, and Mort was sitting right there, you know. So. That's, but that's, that's kind amazing. of good. I think that we should have memorial services for people while they're alive because, you know, what good is it if you're right. dead and people are getting big laughs? You want to know what they're going to do yeah. when you die. So, you know, when you get to a certain age, you should have a memorial service and have people come and say what they're going to say. I kind of feel like that's how the. I feel like that's what the roasts should be, but they're so uh, they're so aggressively joke based. Yeah, now yeah, yeah. It kind of feels like it'd be fun to do a version of that right, where you memorialize right. someone while they're sitting. Maybe they're maybe they're alive, but just kind of in the in the coffin with the right. open, and so you're just listening the entire time. Yes, yeah. No, I think that's a good idea. I mean, yeah, you're right. Roasts are basically just comics. You know, trying to pull out their, you know, most, you know, horrible, horrible things. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you did it, and but you should also have some, like, sad moments. You know, you should yeah. talk emotionally about the person. And roast, they never do that. It is, it is kind of, I mean, I didn't know until, I mean, I know uh, Sid has since passed away. But when Mel Brooks was on our show a few years ago, he said, yeah, you know, we still go see Sid Caesar. I was like, he's still alive. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, he just, yeah, yeah. I mean, he lived well into his 90s. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, Mel is going to turn 90 this year. My yeah. dad just turned 94. Wow. So there's a, you know, there's these guys, they like to hang out. But like I said, my dad years ago, you know, he used to host the uh, Directors Guild Awards yes. for many, many years. He hosted it. And they gave it a, you know, the D.W. Griffith Award. They give it out every year for some lifetime achievement. And they gave it to a guy who was like in his 90s and he couldn't show up. I mean, he was like in a hospital and they like put the the award on his chest. It almost killed him, you know. But, but <laughs> get the, it off, get it off. But my dad said, you know, and he, my dad at the time, I think he was in his late 70s. And he said, listen, if you're ever going to give me any of these awards, do it now so I can <laughs> come to the event and have the ice cream and I'm not, you know, not sitting in a hospital room. So yeah, I think we need to do that, you know. What, what was really interesting about talking to Mel and then hearing about his relationship with your dad was the uh, seeing that they're still uh, very vibrant and comedy has kind of kept them a lot kept them going yeah, kept them yeah. fresh well they're lucky that they have each other you know they 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 clicked back in the you know the days of the show of shows and they they were became instant friends and they've stayed that way and they have they have a way of c- connecting with each other and my dad can get the best out of mel i think a lot of times and i said what's the secret he says i pin him into a corner <laughs> if i can pin him into a place that there's no way he can get out that's that's when he his mind really starts to race you know <laughs> but one night one night we were there and michelle was uh, my wife we we were there together and they got into a fight. Uh, it was like the Sunshine Boys. They got into a fight about uh, an appearance that Mel had on The Tonight Show, you know, with Johnny Carson. And Mel uh, played on it. They were arguing about which line got the biggest laugh, you know, which line of those. And, and my dad had a certain one. And Mel, they were yelling at each other. And Mel played a, 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 a wine expert. And he was blindfolded. And they put a glass of wine in front of him. He drank a little bit and said, oh, I, it's a red wine. It's a Cabernet. I can, it's a 1949. And Carson says, no, no, no. He says, all right. 
takes another sip. He says, oh, let me see. It's a, oh, yeah, it's a red. It's a Bordeaux. It's a night. No. And he says, that's not it. He says, all right, like, takes another sip. I said, okay, it's a white. And that got a huge <laughs> laugh. And Mel said, that was the big laugh. He says, no, it was, my dad says, no, it was the line that came after. That was the big laugh. And he says, and Carson says, the white? No, that's not it. Mel takes another drink. He says, um, it's chiclets. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and Mel said, no, but the white wine got the bigger laugh. And my dad said, yes, but chiclets is the better line. There's a wine expert who can't tell the difference between a liquid and a solid. That's much funnier. Yeah. I love this argument. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was great to see them kind of go at each other, you know. And How did it land? How did it end, the argument? Well, they, I don't know. They, they kind of, one was the better, funnier line, one was the better line. And I don't know how they do. But they every night they, they would get together. They still do. They watch a movie. They eat dinner. They used to make the joke. I don't know if it's true now. They, they, they said any movie that had Secure the Perimeter uh, in the movie, they would watch it. But now I think I think it's a little different. They, it's like who falls asleep first. Right. You know, that's, that's the, you know, who they bet on that. And then they also have this game that they play where there's these pillows on the couch and the feathers are coming out of the pillows. So they pick the feathers out and they make pi- – for over the years, there's piles and piles of feathers. That's that's another thing that they do, you know. The important stuff, very important. The stuff. important stuff. Yeah. But I feel like that's the stuff that sort of keeps you. It keeps your mind engaged and it yeah. keeps you fresh. And you know, the fact that uh, Mel is still, he's like, he still wants to work and make yeah. stuff. I mean, like that. I think is what keeps people young and when yeah. people just stop doing well things. it's it's true i mean my dad every day he gets up and he writes he says if i didn't have writing if i didn't have to write i mean to you know wanting to write i wouldn't know what to do with myself and let's let and he writes books and he's written a bunch of books of his memoirs and children's books and things like that and he wrote a book uh recently uh my life at 93 and basically just wrote about what he does during the day and just wrote it down. But now he's just turned 94. So he's, wow, I got another book. I can write write about my life at 94. uh, Someone told me I was I was performing at this thing called the Oddball Comedy Festival a couple of years ago, and it was in Irvine. Right. Oh, I was there. Yes. Yeah, so I I did a thing where I was crawling on people in the audience. I came yes. off the stage, and someone said. You almost crawled on Rob Reiner, and yeah. I didn't know you were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, w- I, w- I was I was there with Jim Brooks, and uh, you know his kids, my kids, and Michelle, and the whole group of us were down there. That yeah. show was so much fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, Louis C.K. was brilliant. Uh, Dimitri Martin was there. Yeah, Dimitri, yeah. Dimitri Martin. He was great, and Sarah Silverman. It was really funny. So I'm fun. glad I did not. Cr- I'm glad, and I'm also not glad that I didn't crawl on you. But I cr- apparently. During my set, I crawled on the guy who was sitting right next to you. Yeah, yeah. So, so what was the what was the idea? I can't remember why you did that. I don't know. It I was, was just like a around around he... like a comedy mosh pit or something. No, like I that? just I, I I a lot of my set is just talking to people in the audience. So I yeah. just came down and I was yeah. fucking around with people. I honestly yeah. it wasn't anything that was right. It, it wasn't a bit that I normally right. do. I other right. than I was just fucking with someone. Yeah. Well, I love see. I love it when I see a, com- a comedian. It's either the most perfectly constructed jokes you know like like uh, you know uh, uh, Stephen Wright or yes. or, or, or uh 
what's his name who just passed uh, passed away a little while ago? Um, Carlin. No, the guy who's uh, what was the guy that uh, that we listen to all the time on on record, you know? Oh, oh, yeah. What's his name? He's so good. He's so good. Mitch. Oh, Mitch. Yeah, Yeah, Mitch. 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 He has these perfectly constructed jokes, just like Stephen did. They're very self-contained. Yeah, very thing. I like that, or I like people who look like they haven't planned anything. Yeah, and yet there's you know that they're still doing like Louis C.K.'s like that. Yeah. You know, he, he didn't plan, you know, it doesn't look like, he looks like he's just talking. Yeah. And I remember, because I wrote for the Smothers Brothers when I was, for one of my first jobs, you know, and I was, and 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 I saw them in, in you know, in clubs hundreds of times and they do the same routines and every time it looked like they're just talking now and this happened and I thought that's real artistry. To yeah. make it look like you're just talking and stuff and it just kind comes out and it's brilliant. What was the what was that process like on the Smothers Brothers show? Well, it was it was an incredible experience because I was the youngest and Steve Martin was the second youngest and we were kind of thrown together because I was 21, he was 23 and we kind of just that was the thing. And we wrote, I mean, you know, you would just fight to get your material in there and 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 a lot of times the censors would throw stuff out. You right before the you know, the show went on, you know, you'd get the censors wouldn't let us do certain things. And I remember one time Steve and I wrote this routine. It was like a, a satire of a Hollywood premiere, you know, um, renegade nuns on wheels or some thing like that. <laughs> and a guy was interviewing the people showing up on the red carpet, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, we did it. And then they would say, let's see, does anybody have anything? And so we, Steve and I, we just came up with – so we we did the entire piece. We acted out the whole thing, played all the characters. And then Alan Bly and Mason was, ah, I don't know. I don't think that. No, I went again. Then a couple of weeks would go by. Another another thing would get thrown out. And then Alan would say, hey, what about that Hollywood premiere thing? That was good. We can throw that in. And so they made us act it out again, laughing like crazy. They loved nah, nah, nah. That's it interesting. It was such a strange – Time for uh, shifting cultural, like what was what was acceptable culturally, yeah, and a lot of countercultural stuff. Cultural well, stuff we going did. On at the time. We were the, were way out on the edge. I mean, we were doing, you know, as the Vietnam War was going on, the civil rights movement was going on, the women's movement. We were doing all these things and and religious uh, satires. We were doing all this stuff, and it was really not what the 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 networks certainly were you know furious at all this stuff and they kept wanting to you know censor and all that stuff but steve and i wrote the first fart joke ever done on <laughs> national television well, yeah. first of all yeah. thank you for that yeah. well i know really I mean, open the door it's a tremendous distinction um, <laughs> and i and i and i emphasize puts the stink stink. distinction yeah exactly yeah. um it, 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 pat paulson played a uh, the president of the Acme Novelty Company. And he was, you know, demonstrating, you know, the pucker glass and the dribble glass and the and the, the pucker gum and the, the hot gum and the thing that slapped, you know, the buzzer yeah. and all these things. And at one point during the demonstration, he sits down and you hear a... Like this. And I and he goes, huh, somebody slipped a, a whoopee cushion while I wasn't looking. And he gets up. There's nothing yeah. there, of course. <laughs> and so so that was the first. Uh, yeah, that was the first one. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like you need should get an award for that. I yeah, feel like there yeah. should be something, an award. Something, something anything something for that. anything. Exactly. That's amazing. I mean, it. What was the last what was the last thing that uh, the ultimate controversy that put the nail in the coffin yeah, on that show. I, I don't think it was the ultimate. I think it was just the accumulation of it all. 
I mean, we had Pete Seeger on singing uh, Knee Deep in the Big Muddy. We had uh, Harry Belafonte doing some really tough civil rights piece. We had David Steinberg uh, doing a piece on religion. I mean, it was just after a while it got to be where they just – it's a, it's too much, you know, so they, they, they threw him off. But Tommy, I mean, I – you know, to this day, I, I have such respect for him because he fought so hard. And we had all these young guys, you know, writing on the staff and I didn't know. We were all like crazy revolutionaries and, you know, everybody smoking weed in the in the writer's room. Everybody was crazy, you know. And uh, I always think, come on, why aren't you pushing harder? You know, I didn't know. I didn't know when I was that young, you know, that how hard it was for him and – and how much of a you know a champion he was for for First Amendment rights and all that. So I, I have a tremendous respect for him. And then when the Smothers Brothers ended, did you immediately go into another writing job, or did you start getting acting jobs? Yeah, no, I, I did. I mean, I had you know I I had I had worked as a as an improv uh, you know comedian, and and I had I did, you know I had my own improv company. I start I was with the committee, mm-hmm. which was an offshoot of Second City, and they had a. a group in San Francisco and they came down to LA and I joined that company and then I started my own company with uh, Richard Dreyfus was yep. in it and a bunch of other actors and we did Gottlieb that. F- in there? Huh? Carl Gottlieb? Gottlieb was in the committee with me, yeah. Carl was in it and I got hired as a writer off the, out of the committee. Carl and I both got hired out of that and then after that I, I started writing and I did some theater here in LA and I did acted and wrote and directed things and then I uh, started writing for different people and different shows and things and then I got I mean I was writing for Andy Griffith as a matter of fact he had a show this was after the Andy Griffith show he had his own a show called the headmaster he was like a headmaster of like an Oakwood like a progressive school and I wrote for that with my writing partner Phil Mishkin and uh, I had a part in one of the shows and Norman Lear, you know, was starting all in the family and he saw that and he, you know, came in. I came in and auditioned and I got that. I was only 23 at the time of that. So that started me yeah. off into that direction. I mean, that I mean, the, the umbrella of Norman Lear on the over the 70s and just and yeah. just seeing how the paradigm of how comedy was presented on television and kind of what they did and how gritty everything was. Well, think about this for a second. I've always thought this was a weird thing. I mean, All in the Family was on, uh, you know, we were a country of a little under 200 million people. And there was no TiVo, no DVR, nothing, no videotape, nothing. So if you wanted to watch the show, you had to watch it when it was on. Right. That's the only way you could see it. So... You know, there on a given Saturday night, there would be 40 million people wow. watching the same, having a shared experience, and then talking about it. You know, the, on Monday, you know, they did this. Did you see what they did? And it was part of a national dialogue. Now we're in a country of 315 plus million, and if you have a Big hit show. You've got 10, 12 million people. Well, if you're and lucky. If you're no, I mean that's yeah, a monster that's hit. A monster. That's a monster hit. Yeah. and they don't all watch it at the same time. No, because everybody's you know you know DVR and stuff. So it's a different time. You know, it's a very different time. But also the uh, just everything that was happening socially and, and culturally yes. and and being able to use comedy and satire in a way that television comedy really. Was not allowed to do up to that point in the, especially right. in the sitcom format, you right. know, where everything was like bewitched. Well, well, it was interesting because up until All in the Family and Norman Lear and all of his urban shows, all the shows were 
these er, these rural shows. You had the Beverly Hillbillies. You had uh, Petticoat Junction. You had you know Green Acre. <laughs> I mean, it was all you know that guy Mayberry RFD. You know Andy Griffith. It was all that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, this urban you know sensibility came in. And the only place you could watch television was you had three networks. I mean, it wasn't like you have a you know you now you have five six hundred seven hundred choices. Yeah. So this there's tough cutting stuff that's being done, but it's being done in all little niches here and there, and you got to find it. You know, it's a John Stewart or John Oliver or you know uh, you know Bill Maher, whatever you're going to want to watch for satirical political comedy, you can find it, but it's not going to be on one of the networks for sure. But also the spinoffs that came off of All in the Family, yeah. the Jeffersons and Maude, and yeah. just like all these shows that were kind of socially conscious in their own way, yeah. and putting and, and making strong characters. It it this the the focal point you know of that would that weren't just like oh it's a white guy and all yeah, of his white yeah. guy problems let's again. not forget Archie Bunker's place let's not forget Archie Bunker's place let's yeah. not forget Archie Bunker's place and well now the Norman's doing a, a, a one day at a time he's doing it as a Latino yeah uh, you know family did you did was, was the show a was the show a monster hit pretty much right off the bat no no it came on. Uh, it was a British show first. It was a British show till Death Us Do Part and, and uh, Bud York and saw it and bought the rights and then they developed it in, in, in America. They had two pilots. Both of them were uh, – two for ABC and then the one for CBS. It's finally the one they got on. But when it did get on, it came on in a January of 1971 with such a disclaimer – You've never seen a disclaimer <laughs> like they had. Basically, they said, you know, the the views expressed in this show are not those of the network. And they basically went on to say, we don't want to have anything to do with this show. Don't be mad at us. We're embarrassed that it's even on. I don't know. Somebody must have put a gun to our head. <laughs> if you want to watch it, fine. But we don't want to pay any attention. And that's the way it came on. And nobody saw it the first 13 weeks. It kind of not was seen. Then they ran those 13 again. So it ran 26 weeks in a row. And over oh, the wow. summer, they ran it. And by the, the end of the summer, people started picking up on it. So that by the time we went on the second year, it was, you know, through the roof. I would imagine that first season where you're like, not a lot of people watch. It was probably like 15 million people. It was probably yeah. some number that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no, that's right. That's exactly right. I mean, we built up to like 40 million. And then once we were number one, we literally, I'm not exactly, we're number one in America five years in a row, every single week. Which was pretty wild. Wow. Did you like? Did you like? You didn't write on the show, did you? Yeah, you did write on the show. Yeah, I yeah. wrote about four episodes, and uh, you know, we didn't direct any because when you're in it, you know, there's a it's a tape show, so sure. you got to be in the booth, you know. Yeah. But I learned, you know, I looked and saw how everybody did everything, and it was like a school. It's like going to school for me. I mean, it it kind of seems like you <clears throat> transitioned to a lot of different things at a time when. People typically stayed in their lane. If you were a TV actor, you were a TV actor. If you were a movie person, you were. If you were a director, you did that. If you were a writer, you were. Yes, but it didn't. That didn't really seem to matter to you. Well, but, it, it, but you know, it, you're a hundred percent right because in those days, if you were on television, that was your second class citizen. You were looked down upon by the movie people. The movie people were like the the royalty, and you were like the peons, you know. And so you didn't make that crossover. Now everybody crosses over all over the place, and it's great. I think that's great. But in those days, you didn't do that. So I wanted to be a director. So to be a sitcom actor and then become a, a filmmaker, that was like you just didn't do that. I wasn't. So it took me a long time, you know, when to get Spinal Tap 
you know, launched and into the theater took years, you know, for people to take it seriously. And then then you saw a bunch of, you know, Jim Brooks and and Danny DeVito and Penny Marshall. There's a lot of people that came out of television and and did great, you know, in, in, in films. Now... Everybody's crossing over yeah. all over the place. Yeah. yeah. But the timing of Spinal Tap was incredible because it happened to catch this technological revolution of home video so that everyone – I mean I remember just passing that around. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it was it was during home video time but it was also uh, – you know, I remember my, my good friend Albert Brooks uh, who we used to share a house together when we were, you know, starting out. And, uh, you know, he did a routine once where he was a, a mime. He was a mime. And he came out. It was, was on, uh, He did it first. And, by the way, he would do them without trying them out in, in, in a club. He would just do it. He would go on television with it. And he had this routine where he was a mime. He was in white face and he was in a black leotard. And he came. Was on The first time he was on Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, he came out. And he talked the entire time. <laughs> he never stopped talking. Yeah. He just, he just kept talking. He said, he said, look, there's no rope here, but it looks like I'm pulling the rope. But you see, I'm not really because there's no rope here. And he did this. Now, he got no laughs. He got zero laughs. I saw him. I was there. I said, it was like death because nobody got it. Nobody got what he was doing. A few weeks later... Uh, Johnny, no, oh, by the way, and my my dad had been hosting. I remember had been co sub hosting that. The next time Carson is is hosting, they call Albert back to do a routine, and I said to Albert, I said, "What are you going to do?" And he says, "I'm doing the mime piece." I said, "What are you crazy?" He didn't get one laugh. He says, "I'm doing the mime piece." <laughs> he says, "It's funny." I said, "I know it's funny, but nobody laughed at it. That's part of what funny is. You want to get the laughs." And he said, "I'm doing it. I'm doing it." So he went out and did the same exact thing. He didn't change anything. The first part of it, again, dying, a death. Nobody laughed, and then Carson starts to see what this is, and he starts to laugh, and he starts laughing. I mean, hysterical. Now the audience figures out it's a joke. It's not a real... Then the audience goes, and they start to laugh, and the place, by the end of the routine, he was killing, you know, he was killing, and it taught me a lesson, which is you got to wait sometimes, you know? Spinal Tap, when it first came out, people thought it was a real band, (laughs) and people came up to me and said, why would you make a a movie about a band that nobody's ever heard of? And that's so bad. And I said, well, it's you ever seen Saturday Night Live? They make fun of things. They didn't know what the hell I was doing. But as time went by, they, they picked up on it. Oh, my God. But, and as we say in the movie, there's a fine line between stupid and clever. <laughs> well, there's also a fine line between satire and then just the thing you're trying yes. to satirize. Yes, which, which is, yes. And the closer you get to the bone, the tougher it is you know, for the audience. And I, but I think that's the best satire. And I think that's why people will have trouble with Donald Trump because you can't make it up. You cannot – if you were to say you have a candidate who goes on and says, you know, and one, I love the gays. I love the Mexicans. I love the women. I love the Muslims. I love – you can't make it up, right. you know, and, and ban all Muslims and, you know, the, the Mexicans are rapists. And I mean, what do you – you can't make that stuff up. No. So how do you – how do you – You can't. Maybe SNL is just like, well, we're just going to show a clip of stuff he said. Yeah. I mean, and they have done that. Yeah. They've done those kind of things, you know. So. It is – it's pretty amazing to me, though, at a time when, you know, the – now, 
like the mockumentary is a thing. It's a subgenre, yeah. and everyone yeah. people do it all the time. And it's it's. But at the time, it wasn't common. Yeah. yeah. And how do you know? When you're shooting a ton of footage that I imagine a lot of was probably improvised. Like the, just, the whole thing, the whole thing was improvised. Thing, yeah. You're fucking around the whole time. Yeah. What was the edit process like for that? Well, well we, it, we had – when we first put it together – first of all, it took nine months to edit it because we didn't have um, you know, Avid. We didn't have you know, any computer editing. It was all done by hand you know, and it was a 16 millimeter. So it took a long time. And we basically wrote with the pieces of film. Because when we shot it, uh, you know, we had so much. We had literally four and a half hours without the interview footage. And wow. we had three, three hours of interviewed footage where I interviewed them all over the place. So we had like seven and a half hours of stuff. And we finally had to shape it into a, uh, you know, into a film. And that was like writing with the pieces of film. It was, it was like that. It was, it was weird. And I, the whole time we were making it, the guy, this guy, uh, Peter Smokler, and I, you know, he shot all of the Larry Sanders shows. I mean, he shot a lot of Larry Sanders. And Peter was a DP. And, and I hired him because he had done a lot of these rock and roll documentaries. And he had done... Um, you know, he was at Altamont actually mm. during that terrible thing wow. with the Stones and the, and Hell's the Hell's Angels. Angels. Yeah, so uh, you know, I hired him, and we're shooting, and he keeps saying to me, "He said, why we're shooting?" He says, "What's funny about this?" <laughs> says, "This isn't funny." Well, you know, you're just doing what everybody does. I said, it's a little, it's bent a little bit. I just can't, can't tell you. Because he, as, far, as far as he's concerned, this is what they do, you know? You know? I mean, the difference between, you know, uh, Van Halen getting upset because there's brown M&Ms backstage and Chris Guest getting upset because the bread is too small. <laughs> to them, it's that's what they do. You fold it. Yeah, it you breaks. fold the bread. It's, now you're folding the meat. <laughs> you fold the meat. It breaks up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's... The, you you are responsible for some of the most quotable movies in our culture. And the one time you sort of get them to crack, I think it's your line where you say "shit sandwich." Oh, that was a beauty. <laughs> that was a beauty. They didn't see that one coming. They didn't see. They didn't, That's the one time in that movie where you see yeah, them crack. They go. They go because look, they, they, they don't know what I'm going to ask them. You know, I'm going to interview them. They're like regular rock and rollers. I'm an interviewer. I said, I said, I noticed this new album you have out here. It's uh, it's called. A shark sandwich, and I there was a review that came out, and uh, it just said uh, "shit sandwich." <laughs> and then they start to go, and then one of them says, oh, th- uh, "That's not a re- that's just a word. Isn't it? That's, that's not a review. That's a word." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was it was was that sort of an offshoot of the the type of improv character work that you guys that you were yeah, doing back? We in all the- did it. We all did it. I mean, that was our background. So you know, people would always say, "How do you make a movie, you know, it's all improvised. How do you make that movie? I said, you know, either you have those skills or not. I mean, it's not like you can make somebody improvise. I mean, that's what you do, you know? So for me, it was harder to make a movie that wasn't improvised than that because that's what I was, you know, that's what I was taught. You know, I was raised in that. But then the next, was Sure Thing the next movie? Sure Thing, yeah. Which was probably not very improvised. No, no, the only little part that was improvised was uh, John Cusack showed Daphne Zuniga how to shotgun a beer. 
and that was improvised. He improvised that whole thing. But other than that, it was it was all written. Yeah. And then did you once you started doing that? Did you go okay? You, you, yeah. Now you, you figure out. You, you can't. Everyone can't improvise. No, no, that way. no. Not everybody can. And also, you have to learn a little bit of the grammar of filmmaking and what what cameras can do and what lights do. And you learn. And as you go, you learn. And I'm you know gotten hopefully better and better. I think the last this last couple of pictures that I did, I think I've done the best of anything. I mean, seriously. I mean, uh, because I, you you learn a lot and then you're able to put those skills to you know to work yeah and i watched, saw the movie last night oh, oh i yeah. saw hello Char- is it uh, um being charlie, being charlie. i saw yeah. i saw it last night and uh and it's fantastic and there's oh, a lot nice. of stuff in there that i want to talk about but i'm trying to i'm sort of working my way through the oh sure sure yeah, until yeah we, work in, your way until we get there <laughs> Go ahead. I'm just giving it a little bit of linear yeah, yeah yeah um because uh the thing one of the things that i think is most fascinating about you is that you don't ever seem to make the same thing twice you kind well, of make something and you go, oh, I'm going to go. It's like the same guy who made Spinal Tap made, you know, did Misery and yeah, Princess yeah. Bride and yeah, Harry yeah. Met Sally. And yeah. Then, you know. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a, a product of a very disturbed mind. <laughs> I think a person who really doesn't know who the fuck he is right. is going to do that. But no, I, I think what it is, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of different things. I have done, uh, there are similar themes in some of the, you know, there's a father-son thing that runs through some of it. And there's a romantic comedy thing that I, I get, I do. But I, see, I love thrillers. That's my favorite. I love a good thriller. If you make yeah. a really good thriller, I love Hitchcock. I love all... But I never got to make it, so when I got to do Misery, that was to me a real fun. I love doing that. But I had to study to make sure I, you know, the right angles and things that you want to make it look right and stuff. But no, I like doing that stuff. I so like you it. think? So you think the romantic aspects and the father son? But then there's a lot of movies that don't have that. So what is? What do you think is the through line other than just that it's you? Well, I mean, I try to, you know, I, I think a lot of things. I mean, I, I'm very politically oriented. I think about politics a lot of times, and so. I try Try to inject those things into films. I've done that, in, you know, in Ghost of Mississippi and American President, Few Good Men, and now I did LBJ, which is mm-hmm. going to come out towards the end of the year. And so I, I like to get those things in if I can. And then it's really you just try to think about, you know, what do you what do you think about? What do you feel about? What's what 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 you know? What's an extension of how you think? I mean, when Harry met Sally, certainly was that for me. I mean, I I had been single for ten years. I was married ten years. I was single for ten years. I couldn't figure out how the heck this works. I mean, you know, I didn't understand. Could men and women be friends? And if they were, could they have sex? And if they did have sex, would that ruin the friendship? And I, all that stuff was floating around in my head, and and that became you know gave birth to that. And then did you uh, – so how did you start developing that story? Like once you have that basic idea, how do you start layering on the jokes or does it happen when you're shooting or do you kind of – is the script kind of what is what it is? Well, what happened was uh, I went to Nora Ephron because I knew how I thought and I f- just projected that men would feel similarly in a lot of situations. So I knew what I thought about things but I certainly didn't have a woman's point of view. So I – went to Nora Ephron and she agreed to do it and at and first she just interviewed me you know she'd interview me and then we'd come up with things and then I would talk to her about stuff and she would tell me things and those things became initially it was called scenes from a friendship it was kind of like going to be like a Bergman scenes from a marriage mm. you know but it was about a male woman male female friendship but then I my feeling was that men and women um Unless there's uh, no sexual tension between them, they can't be best friends because the sex will always eventually come into into play. 
And that was my theory. And did you still feel that way after? Yeah. I still feel that way. Yeah. I still feel that way. I think, I think you, you can be friendly. I mean, I'm, when I talk about friends, I'm talking about intimate friends where you discuss and talk about the stuff that really goes on with you and what re- you're really feeling and all those things. And you can, have friend, you can be friendly with a woman. A woman can be friendly with a man. But to get to that intimate, real intimate thing, unless there, there's always going to be some kind of sexual tension. And it absolutely was confirmed by the, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. end of the movie. Yeah. Well, what about uh, Princess Bride then? What was what – was, was that just – I want to do a fa- – I want to do like a children's fantasy no, story. No, no. Princess Bride came out of the fact that I was like a huge William Goldman fan. I read every single book he had ever written from, uh, you know, Your Turn to Curtsy, My Turn to Bow, Temple of Gold, Boys and Girls Together, Marathon Man. I read them all. And – my father was making a, had a play on Broadway. It was called The Season. And this was, I think it was in 1968, 69, something like that. And Bill Goldman wrote a book about a season on Broadway. It was called The Season. And my father's play was one of the chapters in that book. And so uh, Bill gave my father Princess Bride. When, when he finished it, gave him Princess Bride to read because they had a relationship and said, hey, maybe this is something you're in, you'd be interested. And he looked at it, and he didn't really read. He says, you're a big Bill Goldman fan. Why don't you read this book? And I was young. I was in my 20s. I started reading, and I went, holy mackerel. This is like... You know, you know when like you read something and you think there the writer is in your head, mm. like they're writing just for you, and it's like, oh my God, this is the way I think about the world and how I, you know, mix uh, romance with satire and adventure and all these things. And so I didn't think about it for a long, long time. Uh, I just, you know, I went and made the first two movies, Spinal Tap and Sure Thing, and I'm sitting with my friend Andy Scheinman, who was my partner at the time, and I said. They make books out of movies, don't they? And I already was already going to plan to make uh, Stand By Me, and I hadn't made Princess Bride. They make books out of movies. And I, I said, yeah, I said, my favorite book of all time is The Princess Bride. I wonder if anybody's ever tried to make a movie out of that. And so I went and looked up and found out, oh, yeah, this was on the Cahiers du Cinema, which is this very esoteric uh, you know, film magazine, talked about it as being one of the 15 greatest screenplays that, you know, it was before the days of the blacklist. Yeah. This was like the original blacklist, this great screenplay. So I, I said, ooh, who, who did it? Francois Truffaut tried to make it. Oh, my it. God. Uh, Norman Jewison tried to make it. Robert Redford tried to make it. Everybody was involved at one point or another. And so I said, I don't know. Let me – let's call. Let's well, yeah, that. finally someone let's good came along. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I call up Bill Goldman and he says he hadn't – you know, he went and saw Spinal Tap, which was out. And he liked it. And then he said, well, and then I was make, I had a rough cut of the short thing, and I sent it to him. This was just to get a meeting with him. He wanted to make sure I was somebody that, you know. So he said, okay, I'll meet with you. And then we go in, to his apartment, and it's on 81st Street and, uh, you know, uh, no, it's 71st Street. 71st Street and, and Madison Avenue. And we go in there, and I'm with Andy Scheinman, and he sits in his chair in his den. He First of all, he opens the door, and he says, The Princess Bride is my favorite thing that I've ever written in my life. I want it on my tombstone. And basically, <laughs> what the fuck are you going to do with it? How are you going to fuck this thing up? So we sat down and I started talk, going through it and saying what I thought should be and why the screenplay didn't do and what I thought. You go back to the book and you do. 
and he's just sitting there. He's not saying anything. He's just kind of writing little things down. At one point, he goes to get to the kitchen to get something to drink. And uh, I turn to Andy and he says, what do you think? I don't know. What do you think? It's uh, He walks in and he has this high squeaky voice. He says, well, I just think this is going great. <laughs> like this. And I went, oh, my God. This was like the happiest moment of my life. And I wa- left and we you know, was walking on air and we got to, got to make it. What did you think of the movie? He loved it. Good. He loved it. He loved it. And, um, you know, he, he came to... He came to to London when we shot it, and the first thing we shot was in the fire swamp. Yes. And the first thing was like, this is after we had shot up in uh, Derbyshire for about four or five weeks. We came down to the the studio, and it's a scene where Robin Wright, you know, her dress catches on fire. He says, you're lighting the leading lady on fire in the first scene? You're going (laughs) to kill the leading? I said, no, it'll be all right. Bill Goldman would stand behind the camera with his back turned, with his fingers crossed and his arms crossed every take that make you a little nervous finally i said bill it's gonna be okay don't worry he got so nervous but he oh, he loved God. it he had a great time and he loved it and but it was the it's the every character no matter how quickly they're on screen is so well defined yeah. so how do you because it seems like you know uh it, it seems like you're you're getting the best you're getting the most organic performance and you're playing to actors strengths in each one of those characters, it's like, oh, this person does that flawlessly, yeah. and this person does this, well, and you're able to pull that out. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you start with a great writer and Bill Goldman, and then you cast people that you know can do that. You know that you're casting them for the specific thing that. I mean, Wallace Shawn, like you, he's well. Wally was funny. That was the only one that was weird because I mean, he plays a Sicilian, but I wanted Wally Shawn just because I thought it was that's kind of a perfect little guy. And the first day, he kept blowing his lines. He was so nervous and. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm not really Sicilian. I'm not real. I, I said, I don't really talk like – I said, you know, Wally, this particular guy talks exactly the way you do. That's how he talked. Oh, okay. And then he went and did it, and he was great. So that dialogue that you have with your performers is that – like what's the trick that you have as a director – to kind of get people into their comfort zone to to do the thing. Well, I just do. want to make. I mean, I knew. You know, it's a it's a character who is very verbal and very dexterous verbally. You know, and that battle of wits that he does. And so I knew he could do all that. And I didn't want him to try to think about how to play a character. Just do what you would do. You know, if you were in this situation, and then he he could do it. He was good. And I also don't know if I. Uh... I, I don't, you know, Will Wheaton's one of my best friends. Oh, really? Yes, I didn't know that. One of my absolute best friends oh, in the world. I'm seeing him tonight. How do you, how do you know? Where do you know him from? I've known we've known each other since we were teenagers. Wow. I knew Will when he was on Star Trek, and then we became roommates wow, in wow. college. We'll say hello to him. I absolutely will. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, really, really nice guy. I still, I would torture him when we were teenagers because he was kind of a broody teen. And uh, we went to a 50s diner once that had one of those uh, jukeboxes. Jukebox thing. You put a nickel nickel in. in. And I got got a dollar's worth of nickels, and I just played standby (laughs) on the loop. And uh, every time it would end, and you would see him kind of relax, because he was very self-conscious about it. And all of a sudden, doom, doom. Dum, 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 and I just see him tense up. It was like 20 times yeah. we had ordered, so we, we couldn't leave. And he's like, I will never fucking forgive you for this. <laughs> That's hysterical. But You uh, know, the, movie, the, the song Stand By Me, which was, you know, Benny King. Yeah. Uh, it was number one when it first came out, 25 years before the movie. And then when the movie came out, they re-released the exact recording. Not oh, a re-recording. Huge again. And it went to number one again. Yeah. That's just wow. weird. Yeah. So what is it each time... 
when you get a script or you see an idea, like what is it kind of? How do you get to the? How do you get to whatever is appropriate for that story? Because you, every movie really is a different. At least on the outside, is a different way of storytelling. And a few good men is a completely different way of storytelling. Yeah, yeah. Well, some 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 things come from plays. Some things come from books. Some are original ideas. Of course, yeah. I mean, the last two. I mean, this one being Charlie's original, and then the one I'm gonna I'm about to make called Shock and Awe is also original. Those things come out of your head, you know. And what do you think? And then you have a vague idea of what it is you want the movie to say. It's very. It's like a big blob of marble or whatever, you know, as a sculptor. And then you just hack away the things that don't fit with what you have in your mind, you and know. How, and how 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 true how much are you staying to the source material in those in those cases? Well, if it's if it's an original, there's no source material. No, no, but, but if, I mean like with, on, with Few Good Men and With Few Good Men, it, you know, uh it's a great play. I mean, Aaron Sorkin is, you know, maybe one of the great American writers now and he wrote this great play, but what works on stage and what works on a film is not necessarily the same thing. And there were a couple of things that were like a little that I saw as holes that you could got to get past on stage. For instance, uh, if the, the main character Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, in the, on the stage, he just b- cracked and just said, "I said it doesn't work." Because you want Caffey to be able to get the best of him. Yeah. To be able to do something to outsmart him and make him crack. And so the whole idea of getting two airmen that might have been there, that wasn't in the play. The two airmen that might have been on the ground in Andrews Air Force Base that would have been able to testify that there was no plane, you know, and that there was no flight, that – that was something. And then also the whole idea of uh, him thinking, well, the guy doesn't have uh, – there's no – you know, did he make any phone calls? Did he pack? When he does that thing with the with his bat and he's trying to figure out and he goes into his, his closet and he looks at the clothes and he goes, wait a minute. If he knew he was leaving and if there was a flight, why wouldn't he pack his clothes? Didn't he pack – those things we added to kind of, you know, shore up the – the story, and then the other thing was Markinson dying. Markinson uh, basically drops the, something in their lap. J.T. Walsh, yeah, J.T. Walsh. But we had Mark, we had him press Markinson in a way that let Markinson uh, reveal certain things. And when we did this, Aaron, you know, to his credit, uh, looked at all this and said, "Wow, this is better. You know, this is better." And then he went and changed the play <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, wow. for the for the touring company. <laughs> Did, uh, I never heard of that, but I mean, I thought that was pretty cool. And but it just just the idea of then misery is such an intimate story. I mean, that's just a, that's just an intimate claustrophobic with two people. So do you approach big stories differently, or little stories differently, or intimacy? Or well, that one is a it's a it's a thriller. So you have to have there's a certain you know like for lack of a better term, a grammar that comes with thrillers that you have to have. But see, to me, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have tackled just a thriller. To me, the, the, the core of Misery was about a guy who had gotten tremendous amount of success doing one thing, and his fans didn't want him to go in another direction. And I knew what that felt like. I knew what it felt like to be a sitcom actor that nobody wanted you to go and do something that you really wanted to do. So I understood that feeling of being trapped by your success and how you can't break out of it so easily. So that became something that was interesting to me. That was that's the subject of that film. That's really and then, interesting. And then you then you make it 
you know, like I say, you make it so that it has the visual images of a thriller. Did you feel hobbled by the business <clears throat> at certain points? Well, you feel, you feel, uh, you know, you're definitely the rug is pulled out from under you. At least it was for me at that time, because they were offering me an enormous amount of money to play the character I had played in a spin-off kind of thing. Michael Stivic. Yeah, and I thought, I don't, you know, that's not what I want to do. I want to do these other things, and that's always what I wanted to do. So they didn't want, and my agent even dropped me, you know, and gave me to a lesser oh guy God, and crazy. stuff like that because they, I said, this is what I want to do, you know, and they said, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I know what that feels like. Did your dad say, like, do what you want, or, well, this is good I money. didn't really talk to my dad about any of this stuff. That's I mean, that's what's interesting. Everything that I've learned from my dad is by watching how he does things. I don't – we never talked, you know, advice, those kind of things. Son, you know, none of that kind of stuff we didn't do. Do you think that – I mean, obviously it must have worked because your career worked. Well, it worked. I mean, for me it worked, you know. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't say that's the best way. I mean, you know, it depends on what you're – what you want to do. I knew that, you know, I knew when I was a kid that I was going to get – you know, you're the son of you're the. I knew that was going to happen, and so it meant it was important for me not to take any money, and not to do that. So whenever it would happen, if I ever had, I would know what happened. Yeah. Whatever they want to say, because people say whatever the heck they want. They'll say whatever they want. They have vi- images of you, whatever. But if you know what you did, then you're on f- solid ground. You're on solid footing. I also think people. <clears throat> It probably feels in a moment like, oh, everyone thinks this way or everyone can't. And I feel like a lot of that is there are things you build up in your own head. Like, well, a few people might say you can't do something, but ultimately they're not invested and it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And eventually if you keep pushing and pushing and pushing, then their opinions will change over yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. But there's a, there's a, there's a definite groupthink mentality. I mean, you know, and, and it's just not just this town, but in everything. You know, if you've done one thing and just successful, that's what you do. That's, people feel comfortable if they can put you in a box. They, that, that makes that comfortable for them. But that early, like around the same time <clears throat> Spinal Tap came out, uh, the, you know, the, the early 80s was such an amazing time for comedy because you have the stand-up comedy boom and then you also have like the Lowell Gans, Babalu Mandel yeah. movies and you yeah. have Ron Howard and you yeah, have yeah. you and you have Fast Times and you have just like a, a completely different type of generational comedy that's exploding. Yeah, that well period. now now the thing is the studios don't make any of those. All those things that you just mentioned, nobody, they don't make them. You know, they make they make movies that have man and a number in the title. Right. You know, <laughs> Superman two, Batman four, Iron Man seven, Spider Man thing. It's that's it. Or w- wars of uh, stars, right. wars of star Trek. wars and stars and, and tracks. Yeah, they have that. So the people who making comedies or any other kind of movies, they're having to do, uh, th- you know, through the independent route. So you, there's a lot of good people doing a lot of stuff, but they're doing it for a dollar forty. You know, right. I mean, you don't get the money, and you try to do whatever. You, I mean, uh, we ran into Dimitri Martin yesterday. He said he made a movie for eight hundred thousand dollars. I mean, I'll be curious to see it. I mean, I bet it's funny. I bet it'd be funny. Was that Tribeca? People liked it. Yeah, that's yeah. what I heard. And he got a he got a distributor. CBS mm-hmm. Films picked it up. Did you see the thing where Ted Cruz inadvertently quoted American President and Princess Bride? That's he quoted what, Princess Bride. Oh no, he did a whole scene from it. He did the entire scene of Miracle Max, Billy Crystal. He did the entire scene <laughs> to Blave. He did everything. <laughs> you 
yeah. Oh, no, no. He did the whole thing. I, I like a nice uh, MLT, mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean. He did the whole thing in the perky. He did all that. And I got a call from the New York Times saying, you know, you want to comment on the fact that Ted Cruz is, you know, quoting Princess Bride and stuff. I said, nah, I don't think so. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I need fans like that. But he didn't. But when he quoted American President, it wasn't under the. It wasn't. I'm doing a quote. No, he said it like he was saying it. Right, right. And then because, someone noticed, like, oh, that's what Michael Douglas says yeah, about his wife. When because someone, he's defending his wife. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> a little weird. I don't know. It's just a little weird. Like, well, no, but people, you know, people, uh, if they like movies or if they like, you know, they can quote. That's what Things, I'm saying. You know, it's, it is. It is. You have created some of the most. It even portable... seeps into lizard brains, Chris. It really. <laughs> it's you have even you you you've created some of the most quotable things, and and what's amazing about that is you obviously must feel a sense of satisfaction, but also that also kind of means in a way you have no ownership over it anymore. No, people make up. Here's the the, the two things. One was uh, bucket list. Bucket list. Uh, didn't yep. exist before the movie. And this is the weird one because everybody assumes that's a term that's been around for a million years. But it, it was it was created for the movie. And the bucket list, uh, people have their bucket list. You yeah. hear it all the time, you know. But uh, it, that's a weird one that they don't that, – that they didn't realize that that didn't exist before. And my favorite one is my mother, you know, saying I'll have what she's having because it's – my mother, you know, and 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 they have those top five, you know, top yeah. movie lines, and you know, it's uh, frankly, my dear, don't give a damn, and you know, I should have been a contender, whatever the thing, and it's you know, Brando and Clark Gable and Estelle Reiner, and they're in that, she's in that group, in that grouping, but it is funny, yeah, but 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 Mandy says. Uh, you know, uh, he doesn't. A day doesn't go by that somebody doesn't say, uh, you know, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Oh, yeah. Or Wally doesn't. Wally Shawn. Inconceivable. Him, inconceivable. They say that to him. They That's, yell it out. Or with uh, Peter Cook, it was probably Mowage. 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 Yeah. I mean, it is. It is. You. There's no way you can. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> <laughs> that was from. Mm, what was yeah. that from? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's another one that's still. But you can't plan that stuff. I no. mean, you can't. No, you never know what what what's going to jump out of a film or what people are going to take away. But what what's the feeling that you get inside when you're looking at something and you go, "I think this works," because whatever that is, obviously. Well, works. I think the scene works. You know, I'm looking to make the scene work. You know, and that to me is is more important. So you don't know what's going to jump out. I mean, even with my mother, we had this scene where Meg Ryan was going to fake an orgasm in a in a deli in Katz's deli, and I knew that was funny. I mean, it's funny. It's just funny, and I knew it was going to be funny. And Billy came up with the line that my mother, you know, the topper. And I didn't know if that was going to get more laughs than what was happening. So, you know, you put a scene together and if it doesn't get the big topper, you then don't. And I told my mother, I said, you may not, you may wind up on the cutting room floor because, you know, she's, that's all right. You know, I just like to be, spend the day here. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> Have a hot dog, whatever. But the point is, it turned out to be the funniest line in any movie I ever did. And uh, so there you go. Well, that's why I think it's really interesting that, 
you know, at, with this many movies under your belt, that you would make a movie like Hello Charlie that's being Charlie. I mean, being why Charlie. do I keep saying hello? I'm so sorry. I saw well, the movie last well, night. Hello Kitty. Hello Kitty. Did you? <laughs> you, you made the Hello Kitty. Yeah, movie. The Hello Kitty movie was the is the sequel to Hello. It's this, it, to, it's being a, to, to being Charlie. Being Charlie. Yeah. yeah. Which is a really interesting way to go with it to go from uh, substance abuse to anime. But I think it was very. Yeah, bold. I know. Well, listen. You know, I'm a I'm a miss the you know. Uh, <laughs> Renaissance man. They, Renaissance. Said, they said, Rob, uh, b- being Charlie might not translate well in Japan. What if it was Hello Kitty? And you're they, like, well, okay. we got to finance yeah, this. Yeah. yeah, we have to finance this. No, but being Charlie, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was the most personal film I, I've ever done. I mean, that that one is, you know, ripped right out of the, our lives. Was it uncomfortably personal or did you feel like that telling the story was helping you process it or just it, that you were helping other people deal with the same no situation? it was it was like being in 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 therapy for a year without uh without a therapist there. right yeah no it was it was good i mean i'm listen it, it did a lot for my relationship with my son we went we worked through a lot of stuff together there were times when you know it's not exactly us so you know we could talk about it in uh you know uh, that it didn't directly relate to us but then there were times when it you know talk about close to the bone it would sometimes bump up right against it and so it became tough but all of that became very helpful and i you know it's the the most difficult and most uh, uh uh satisfying creative experience i ever had and so because carrie's character is not, is it elwes Carrie Elwes. I yeah. always said Elwes, and then you were right. Like, no, I think it's Elwes, and I'm like, oh, I think uh, it's Elwes. Elwes, yeah. Because yeah. um, his, his character was not painted in the best light. He wasn't a right. bad guy, yeah. But he just he definitely was very career focused, right? And he was very focused on the, in his case, and it seemed like he was an actor who was kind of not unlike Carrie Elwes in real life, who then decided to become a politician. Right. right. Well, what I, what we did is the original uh, screenplay that uh, Nick. And Matt Ellisoffen wrote uh, was 190 pages long, and the father was really bad. I mean, really bad. And I, at that time, I knew Nick. I knew how Nick felt about me, so I knew those things were were there. Um, but I said to him as I approached him as a director, I said, you know, the f- if we're going to make this interesting and good. Every character has to have dimension to it. There has to be more than one thing because then it's not interesting. And he said, yeah, but the guy's an asshole. He's not a guy. I said, okay, but I think now this one. <laughs> He's kind of pointing a finger at you. Exactly. He's a prick. Yeah. Um, and so so I, 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 I went, uh, you know, so it took like a year over course of a year and it, it, to work the screenplay and fix it and change and at one point he says to me, he says, you know, I think the father has to be, uh, you know, he's not, he can't be such an asshole. We got to make him more real like this, you know. And it was reflecting, I think, a lot of what was happening between the two of us. And there's a scene at the end of the movie, if you so you saw it, where the father, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's like got an empty moment and he goes to talk to his son and – that scene, we wrote, rewrote that scene a hundred times, and right up till the day we shot it, and because it kept changing based on what was evolving between the two of us. And now, from that point to now, we've gone way, way beyond that. So, you know, it's it it was good. I mean, ultimately, and I told this to Nick too while we were making the movie. I said, 
I said, first of all, you're the heart and soul of this movie. And secondly, we've already won. Whatever happens, we've already won. Because we, we're, we're, we found a way to take things that we went through and make, something, make art out of it or make something out of it. And hopefully it'll have some effect on some people and people will be able to see it and relate to it. I mean, certainly now when you see what's going on in suburban America, you know, with, with uh, heroin and drug, drug usage, it's crazy. Well, do you – because I've been you – know, I didn't do drugs, but I drank a lot. I was in sober for 13 years. And so watching it and seeing all the recovery stuff and yeah. seeing him try and kind of feel like he wanted to do the right thing. But it was such an interesting point that – Every time they started feeling better, there was some sort of a parental influence in their life that was like, I don't know why they can't just be normal. And they're like, oh, well, you're just making him feel worse. But obviously the parents are human beings and they have stuff to go through too. Yeah, well, the parents are thinking that that your main job in life as a parent is to keep your child safe. That's your main job, that nothing bad could happen to your child. And if you see your child running into the street and the truck is going to hit it, you'll do anything. You'll do anything to stop them from getting killed. And so if you're, you know, if your child is going through stuff, whether it's, you know, alcohol, drugs, gambling, you know, whatever it is, you just, you, you don't know how to deal with it. So you throw yourself at the mercy of experts, you know, quote unquote experts. And everybody has a way of doing it. The truth of the matter is you know more about your kid than, than they do. And if you follow your own instinct, you'll probably be better off. Uh, I think, instead of trying to impose ways that you think you should be based on what experts tell you. And that's what we we talk about in the film. And what do you think you would have done differently? Well, I probably would have uh, let him be more and also uh, spent much more time with him. You know, just spending more time with him would have would have helped. I mean, is that is that your advice to parents kind of going forward? Is just like I don't have advice because <coughs> I, I don't I only know what has worked now for me and for, for Michelle. I don't I don't know what could work for other people. This is what I think sure. and I don't know what's what's true. But my feeling is that uh, the problems people have with either alcohol, drugs, uh, you know, gambling, whatever it is they have uh, is is not that is not the disease. See, the disease is the thing that you have that makes you take those that makes you self try to mask it. Yeah, you want to medicate yourself if you don't feel good about yourself, an emotional state, whatever it, whether it's chemical imbalance in your brain or some emotional traumas that have happened over life, and everybody has them, and you use. Uh, substances to make you feel better, that's you. That's you uh, self-medicating. So to me, if you're going to understand why it is you do, and everybody's different, why do you do those things? Why are you feeling bad? That takes self-introspection, therapy, uh, whatever those things that can help you get to feeling good about yourself. Right. Because I don't know if you saw this guy was on Bill Maher. Uh, a while ago, he talked about the you know the very famous uh, experiment with the rat uh, you know in the cage you know and it goes they got the little water bottle and the water bottle laced with cocaine and the rat goes to the cocaine over and over and over and you say well it's addictive you know it's an addictive thing you'd rather have the cocaine then they put the rat in a huge park you know with male female rats and trees and all kinds of 
you know, things. And then they had the two uh, bottles, the, the cocaine water and the, and, the, and, the, and the regular water. They went to the regular water. Why? Because their life was good. They don't want to cha- – you don't want to change the way you feel if you feel good. If you feel bad and you're in a cage and there's no place to go, you'll do anything to make yourself feel better. Yeah. And you'll do whatever it takes. So it's it's understanding that and then trying to attack the roots of why it is you're using to begin with. I think the, the rat's just doing the cocaine and then punching the wall because he can't get an erection, right? Was that the study? I think that was. I think that was the I other study. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. he's like, we've got to start a company. And like, he yeah. just got really aggressive yeah, that and was then it. became a traitor. So, I think, so maybe, they, maybe you, Thank you. you should have done that, that study because <laughs> clearly, clearly you have a better feeling. Have for a better, this but I, I also think there's a lot with, it, with, with that kind of, an, with the kind of addictive personality that I'll, some of us <laughs> that have. That rat is now shorting auto loans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like his tiny little pan is just wiping his little red nose. Um, but it's it's also uh, I think there's a lot of control issues too because when you can't when you feel like you're out of control, even if something is bad for you, it's a predictable outcome. So right. you know, like, well, if I take this or if I do this, I'm kind of I can control my experience even right. if it's bad. Right, right. But I think what happens to people is they realize it's bad and it's and ultimately doesn't do what you want it to do. Right. That's what happens to anybody who hits that wall and they go, you know, some this ain't working. This is not getting me what I what I needed to get me. And then sometimes for some people it could be too late. Uh, other people they can pull it back and and try to re- reconnect. Themselves. Well, what was your kind of breakthrough moment with him then? What was the sort of moment where you feel like nothing's working, nothing's working? Oh my God, we've finally gotten. Well, somewhere. well, we started listening to him. We started listening to him, really listening to him, and. You know, if you try to take any kid, I don't care who they are, and this is this, I kill my kick myself for this because as a director, every actor is different. Some actors need a lot of hand holding, others like to be left alone, some like to be kicked in the butt to, to do, you know, and you learn to get the best. You, and we have children, you don't, they're not all this, they're all different. So how you treat and how you handle one child is going to be different maybe than how you handle another. And uh, we should, you know, he's, he's a brilliant guy. He's smart. He's funny. He's attractive. And he thinks differently. And so that's good. Let him be, you know, and let him and listen to him. Yeah, that's also a lot of improv training, too, is listen. You have to listen yeah. to the other person. You yeah. have to listen. Yeah. And I feel like if people listened more and had more conversations, it's almost like there wouldn't be as many problems as we're having now. Because I feel like everyone just wants to shout at each other all the well, time. Well, that's certainly on television. I mean, in the, in the political in the political sphere, that's for sure. Is it – every generation says – you know, the previous generation always looks down at the younger generation. They go, yeah, everything's – fucked now and it was better when I but did it feel that way like in the 60s and the 70s during that social revolution like did things feel good do things feel that much different now or does it just feel like part of the same well, kind of human condition that plays well I think everybody every generation has to find their identity and find what it is that works for them I mean we had issues I mean you have actually bigger issues now than we had in the 60s oddly enough 60s we had the Vietnam War we had civil rights we had the women's movement there was a sexual revolution we had too. Cold War, all that stuff is going. But now you've got the destruction of the planet. We didn't. I mean, you could bomb people, and a lot of people die, but the planet doesn't go away. Right. I mean, that planet won't go away this time either. But the people on the planet could go away if you don't start reversing, uh, you know, uh, fossil fuels and all that, and climate change. So that's bigger stuff. 
And then you also have this insidious war of people who want to kill us because we dance or because we, you know, we wear the certain clothes a certain way. Or we well, I think you're talking about the movie Footloose right now. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the underlying plot of that movie. <laughs> it yeah, is yeah. ultimately the underlying Lithgow's plot started of ISIS. I don't know but if you know think that. About, yeah. But think about that for a second. You know, it's, it's funny. Make a joke, but it's true. You think about, uh, you know, fundamental religion. And what fundamental religion will do yeah. is to restrict people from being human. Right. And so... Because there's control it, in that. Yeah, whether it's, you know, Lithgow or, or you know, ISIS. <laughs> you know. Or John Should Lithgow. we... <laughs> hang on, hang on. Yeah. Should we airdrop copies of Footloose into the Middle so. East? I think so. I think we solved it, guys. I think I, I think feel we great do. About this podcast, <laughs> yeah. I just want to hear that. Uh, well, Kenny Loggins is touring <laughs> Afghanistan. Footloose, yeah. footloose. It's huge. It's huge. Dun, 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 dun. They actually just really want to hear him do the Caddyshack song. They just want to hear yeah. him do Caddyshack. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you've had as many incredible sort of career m- moments as you've had, and many, do you ever stop and think about it and absorb all of it, or is it just? Do your thing, move on, do your thing, move on, do your thing, move on, and kind of... That's the way to do it. I mean, that's the way to do it, because um, you got to live in the what you're doing. I mean, all we have is this moment, you know? And as you get older, you really realize that, because, you know, the thing gets a little bit, you know, finite, you know? And right. So you do it, you know, we're doing the podcast now. There's all of this, these people, we're all in this room, and we're doing this now. That's all we have. Yeah. That's all we have right now. That's it. This so is they, it. Yeah. Right now. This is it. Make no, no mistake. It all comes back Kenny to Loggins. Loggins. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Oh, my God. What if Kenny Loggins is like some weird mason? Uh, right. What if Kenny Loggins is the answer to all our problems. I think he is. It, I mean, highway to the danger zone. Yeah. Oh, maybe he was talking about global warming. <laughs> he might have been talking about yeah. global warming. Yeah. yeah. We're all on the highway to the danger zone. The 80s were all consumed with fossil fuel back then. We need to really right. sit down. Kenny Loggins, get on this podcast. Where the hell is Kenny when we need him? I think he's in the Palisades. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny Loggins owns the Palisades. <laughs> he's just in the Palisades right now. I did a thing with him once. He was really nice. Kenny, book Kenny Loggins. Thank we got to get Kenny Loggins on here. We need him to do a socioeconomic uh, breakdown. Make sure of... Rob's schedule's open up so we can come. <laughs> yeah, Rob's got to come on with Kenny Loggins. But we're going to grill him to tell us all the hidden meanings. It's going to be like National Treasure with Nicolas Cage. We but need instead to go of... to the set of Shock and Awe. We can make it happen. We can actually Where make this shooting? happen. We can make this Shock happen. Shock and Awe, we don't know yet. But we haven't picked. But we're looking at possibly Ohio. Okay, forget but... that. <laughs> That's all it took? That's all it took? Just like you refuse? I mean, Ohio's a vast wonderland. Well, if he's there in July, it's going to be a shit show. No, no you no, got not July. Oh, that's when you want to? <laughs> you got July. Cleveland, you got Columbus, you got Cincinnati. Rock and roll Hall of Fame. be in Cleveland during the Republican National Convention? Well, listen. <laughs> that should be fun, actually. All right. And we got all right, he convinced on. me. That's a good show. That's a good if show. If you're with Loggins, are you going to say that's not going to make everything better? I mean, that instantly makes everything yeah. better. Uh, Bring Messina with you while you're out. <laughs> no, fuck him! Fuck Messina! Why? Why give such a strong... I don't know. It just seemed like a fun thing to be against him for a second. Is Messina still alive? Is... I don't know. I don't know. No, that, do you think you just killed him off? That would be terrible. Wouldn't that you would feel be terrible if you just killed him off? Well, I would also realize that I have a weird power. It's just yeah. like the sarcastic kiss of death. Like, yeah. if, I'm being good. Sar- if I'm being sarcastic. Yeah. But fucking McDonald's? No. What? I mean, well, it's just unhealthy food. Of- <laughs> I'm just trying to take yeah. down. I was yeah. trying to use it responsibly. Yeah, take down an entire corporation, like worldwide yeah. corporation. Fucking Ted Cruz. There you go. With your 
No. Didn't work. <laughs> Katie? Maybe it did work. Who knows? I don't know. We'll check the internet afterwards. <laughs> see if he's still around. Let me see if he's still Courting around. Morning Princess Bride. But... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he might be. He did the whole thing of The Simpsons. He obviously likes comedy. He likes. Uh, he li- He watches. He's That's a. He's, so a weird. he's a. Yeah. You know, pop he's, culture guy. Hey, he's a great. <laughs> great. Well, I want to thank you for being here. Yeah. Um, please come back anytime you have something. To yeah. When did, and, and when does this podcast? Katie, when is this going up? Cast. Katie, our producer is now checking the calendar as we speak. In a fashion that is exciting to watch. Next huh? week. <laughs> Next week. So go so go, go see Being Charlie then on May 6th. It opens May 6th. It opens May 6th. Yeah, you could go. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, Being Charlie opens May 6th, and okay. uh, everyone's great in it. I mean, it really was a... Oh, oh my thanks. God. You picked a great weekend to open. Nothing's coming out that weekend. What else uh, is coming out? Captain America. <laughs> okay. You know... <laughs> I'll tell you something. It is a different, different audience, experience. very much so. Well, we're only in one. We're only in uh, one theater in New York and two here in LA. So, so it'll it'll be yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah I, good. I think I think it'll be totally fine. Well, I'm seeing Captain America Thursday anyway, you which are? opens up my weekend. Which one is your favorite uh, Avenger? Of the of the well, I'm team well Iron aren't they Man. fighting? I'm team Iron Man. Uh, yeah, so Robert yeah. Downey. So they're but they're against each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris Evans and because one of them's for government oversight, the other one doesn't like it. I yeah, don't know. Yeah, They'll get see along. that to me. I can you can make an argument, Captain America. You know, Avengers. Those people. In the, the Batman versus Superman. That was a romantic what, thriller. No, but wait a minute. That was a lot of sexual what, tension. What, what is there? What's the contest here? I, yeah, I, I, Superman's got superpowers. Batman can't do anything. Yeah, he's the he world's greatest do, detective. No, but, but, he's but, not he, a but guy. He, he drives. No, a I'll car. tell you what that movie did. It made me a huge fan of both those characters. Not see that movie. Really? I didn't see it. Still haven't seen it. See, we had the argument in Stand by Me when they they talked about you know who was who would win between Mighty Mouse and Superman. Yes, you know, and he said, "Superman, what are you talking about? Superman's a real guy. (laughs) Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. There's no way a cartoon could beat up a real guy, (laughs) right?" We're still having those same fucking yeah. arguments. Yeah. We're it still will never those, end. We're still having those arguments. But thank you so much, right, Robert. Thank you. It was good to thank see you. Thank you for having me. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Okay. okay, I think you might want to know this. What? Kenny Loggins was having health problems uh, in 1982. Oh, no. And he went to see a woman named Julia Cooper, a colon therapist. Oh, yeah. They were both married at the time. His wife was pregnant with their second child. He started a relationship with the colon therapist. Oh, dear. Oh, Jesus. They both divorced the day. They got together. But then his colon cleared up. They, uh, <laughs> they had a multi-level marketing organization. Oh, my God. He got a new pyramid scheme. And then they did a book called The Unimaginable Life about their relationship. Its purpose was to offer an alternative to typical relationships where spouses feel they cannot be completely honest. They went bankrupt. She walked out on him. (laughs) (laughs) This is a great podcast. That is a movie. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like sure. to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker 
lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the wayback machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts